Please be seated. So good to worship with you all today. And um, I don't know if you were caught off guard on the rain. I was, but I should have. Um, and uh, it just happened that way. And maybe you're like me and you went yesterday and thought, oh, it's so nice to clean the car for once. Anyways, um, today we look at this passage that talks about the uh, assurance of salvation. Sometimes we feel like we have it, sometimes we don't. Um, sometimes we feel like we're pretty good enough, and sometimes we feel like we are so distant from God. And so we look at this uh, passage today, and we see uh, this famous saying here, no one can snatch me, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. And so we're going to look at that uh, uh, truth today. And I don't know if sometimes you felt it, I don't know if you've ever felt secure, and I don't know about how many things in life that you are for sure guaranteed um, you know, you, we buy things sometimes and it has a, a lifetime guarantee. You go to Costco and they'll take back just about anything. And I'm guilty of returning things where I was embarrassed that I might run into you guys, you know. And so returning uh, an old TV or something like that or um, uh, food that we didn't like. And uh, so I just try to go, I hope I don't see any church people as me returning this. Um, but anyways... Uh, there are these guarantees we think about, but uh, really the only thing in life, um, and we hear this often, people say, is death and taxes, right? Um, uh, but more than that, uh, the real assurance, the guarantee that we have is the assurance of our salvation. And so sometimes we think about salvation, we often focus on the beginning part of it, that I'm saved, uh, what Christ did for me, the time that I confess my faith in Christ. But we don't really think about the end of it and the implications of that. What does that look like for me today? If I am secure, and if my faith in Christ has made me secure in God's hand, and no one can snatch me out, what does that look like? And so we want to look at this passage today. You know, we're in John 10. He starts last week by talking about being the good shepherd. And he starts by introducing what it looks like, how he goes and he gathers his sheep and he guides them out. And maybe if that's the beginning, he talks about at the end what it might look like, that we have the security. And so we want to focus on this idea of the assurance of our salvation, of those who have faith in Christ, that it's not something you gain, earn, lose, forget. It is there, and it is guaranteed for us. Um, and we look at this in, in this passage today and some few other verses. It gives us, um, the first part, it gives us these three reasons why it is secure. And then the second part of our message will be, what should I do? How does it impact me, right? Uh, the first part, why is it secure? Well, first of all, it's initiated by Christ, number one. Began the good work in you. Well, see it to completion, right, in Christ. So he initiates the work. He's the one that gives us the faith to even believe. God, the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to see. There was a time and a place, some of us remember, Oh, where I accepted Christ, or there was a, a, a gathering, and I remember, you know, on a certain night and a certain time, I came and became a Christian. Yes, that's true. However, we see that that faith you have is even that is a gift from God. Um, this passage in John 10, 26, he tells the Jews, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Uh, they don't believe, they don't have the gift of faith yet. Uh, they can't just decide to believe. It's God illuminates it in them through the Spirit. Um, in Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 8 is arguably, as many theologians and, and 
Alive and Dead will say is the greatest chapter in the Bible, right? One of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And in it is a, a two verses that theologians call the golden chain of salvation. It, they're all linked together. And it's golden. It's priceless. And it's uh, Romans 8, um, 28 uh, and 9, right? Uh, 29. Uh, it says, for example, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he starts with this idea of he knew us for knowledge. He knows something ahead of time. He knows us well before the creation of the world. He knows us. And now he has predestined us. Now, some have tried to explain this word, the foreknowledge, as to say, well, um, God looked at life. He saw, oh, he's going to be, you know, uh, little Bobby's going to be a good boy, right? Little, you know, little Jill is going to be a good girl. So, okay, I'll, I'll make him to be a Christian. So he saw what we would have chosen, and then he decides on that. And that is an intimate knowledge. He knows us. So he knows all of our sins, our shortcomings, our insecurities, our unfaithfulness, and he still chooses us. This is what makes it so great. You know, there was a, an episode in this old show I used to watch, and I'm sure some of you might have as well, called The Twilight Zone. I remember it used to be on Saturday night, was, which was a, the night I get to stay up to watch TV, right? And... Um, and it was like at 11.30, it was a twilight zone, a little spooky, a little weird. It was all black and white in the beginning. And there was one episode where this boy is upset at his parents for something. I don't remember the details, but he's upset. They disciplined him. So he's upset. And then he goes into the twilight corridor. It's like a, a store or a mall. And in it, there are these display cases. And inside the display cases... There are pairs of parents, mom, dad, mom, dad, mom, dad. And he's going shopping for his parents, new parents, right? So he goes and he sees, and the first one is his own parents. And they're like, son, pick us, you know, sorry. And then he's like, well, and then he looks here, and there's a better-looking set of parents. And they're richer and nicer. And then, oh, we'll give you this, and we'll give you that. Now, think about that. If you had the option to pick, those of you who have kids, all of us have parents. Imagine, okay, imagine if our parents had the option to choose. And if they had the foreknowledge and they knew what you might do, how you might react, that if you're going to be a terrible two-year-old or not and get through that phase, or you're going to be a difficult teenager with uh, the hormones going crazy, and if they get to see it, the question is, would you pick them still, Right? Those of you moms and dads, if you got to see now all the stuff that your kids have put you through and you got to go back 15 years ago, 10 years ago, before you decided to have this child and you're having that discussion, oh, whoa, 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 you know. No, we would say, of course I would pick this child. Of course I want this child. We might have a moment and we might just pause for a second. Well, maybe, no, I'll pick this child, of course. Because there is this knowledge that I love we love this person and if you had a chance to go and exchange your child for a better one there are new ones coming around all the time right right there are new ones um, and you can go pick one like a new phone or a new car would you go and pick one you might think about it for a second but you're no I'll just keep the one I have okay I love the one I have and this is the picture we have from our God. It's not so much he looks at us and because we were going to be so good. It's because of his love for us. And so from eternity past, he chooses us. The picture is set is that our salvation, it's a gift. 
So gifts are not something you earn, negotiate, bargain after, deserve. Gifts are free. It's a gift. It says in verse 28 in our text, I give them eternal life. It's a gift. He gives us eternal life. I don't know how far back. Think for a moment. How far back do you have to go to remember getting a gift and feeling no strings attached to it? No sense of, I need to repay. Do I deserve this? How much did they spend on me? Last time I spent uh, where you got a gift. And you just enjoyed the gift. It was Christmas morning. You tore it open. It was your birthday. Someone got it for you. It, and you just said thanks. And you're just enjoying it. Right? How far back do we have to go? For many of us, it's age 7, 8, 9, 10. And as we get older, what do we want to do? We feel obligated. Oh, i got to pay him back. We feel obligated. Well, I should get something more. I deserve something a little bit better. Hey, last time I took him to, you know, brunch at Taps, and today they're taking me to eat two tacos. Like, what's going on, right? You know, what kind of gift is this? I deserve more. Gift that we receive from Christ is eternal life. He gives it to us. So we didn't earn it, and we didn't deserve it. We can't lose it. He has given us a gift. It's free. And we hold on to it and we enjoy it. Thirdly is, this salvation is secured forever in the future. And I don't know how far, how many times we look that far ahead. We're already on 2020, right? In 2020, I still get caught up writing checks, right? Uh, adding my age or, um, you know, someone, how long have you been married? And, oh, gosh, you know, it's, I, let me um, look it up. And time's going by, right? Before we you know, 2030, 2040, 2050, God willing, we are around, all of us. But even at that point, he is holding on to us as he is holding on to you today. It's interesting, this verse, as I mentioned, verse 28, this little phrase, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. This verse is highlighted in just about every systematic theology book, the big books that you, know, you will read at seminaries and so on that talk about soteriology, the, the study of salvation. And every time they go to it, they point to this verse to say, no one can snatch you out of your hands. You cannot lose it. You cannot even escape that on your own. No one can snatch you out of my hands. Not even Satan can take you out of my hands. No one rich enough, powerful enough, sinful enough can now guilt you and take you out of the Christ's hand. He holds us. Is, this little phrase here is in the future tense. No one will snatch. No one is able to in the future. No one is able to. The, a New Living Translation just says no one can. It, it, but it's more than that. It's not just present tense. It's the future. So 2050, 2060, 2070. No one can snatch you out of the hand of God. I love this quote from Pastor Vadi Bacham who says, Folks, if we could lose our salvation, we, could, we would. If all of us could lose it, none of us would be here at this time. I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. And so we, uh, what theologians call the doctrine of perseverance we cling to. The doctrine of perseverance is the idea that the saints or the Christians will make it to the end because of what Christ has done. 
So what do we do about this? This is stuff that's way out there. It's just book knowledge. It's, um, but how is it practical for me today? I think it impacts us in two ways. It makes us to be able to trust God more. It's only common sense to trust the one who's trustworthy. Secondly is to follow hard after God, to live passionately after God. All right, let me just highlight these two applications for us. If he is powerful enough, right? if he is who he says he is, uh, we should trust him. Uh, it's interesting, in verse 30 and 31, there is this, uh, in verse 30, Christ says something, and here he is talking about his own status being equal to God. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. One in authority, one in power, one in essence. They're one. And if you do not know what he really meant, you understand what he meant by the reaction of the Jews in the very next verse. They tell us all that we need to know. This is what he is implying. This is what he meant in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This was for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. So it is clear what Jesus meant. He is putting himself at the level of God the Father. He is God the Son, distinct, yet the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says, we are one. And they pick up stones. And we pause for a moment. The one who saves us is the all-powerful God. He is one with God the Father. He is not just a mere man. He is not just a mere messenger. He is not even just a mere angel that comes to us. He is God, the Son. And so our response ought to be that we trust him. Now you think about this. Um, whenever you need something, what do you do? You, you know, let's say at a restaurant you're getting terrible service. You know, and if you're the type to now say, I need to talk to someone. Well, you don't say, hey, call me the bus boy. I need a complaint. No, you say, let me talk to the manager. Right? That's a tough job being a manager of a restaurant, right? Because every time they're called, it's like, oh, I got a complaint, you know, my chicken was cold or whatever it was. Or if you have a problem at school, you don't just come and talk to the teacher, but you say, I didn't want to make an appointment with the principal. I need to talk to the principal. You want to talk to someone in charge because they have the ability to make something happen. And this is who we come to. You know, when I was uh, my first week at seminary school, you know, back when I was uh, 23 years old, I believe, at Talbot's Seminary, they had a, uh, a dinner, a welcome dinner for all the new students. And out on the lawn and uh, the table set up and you get a name tag and I sat. Uh, and I didn't know, but the faculty mixed in and they sat with us and they didn't write that they're faculty or they didn't say anything. And next to me sat a, a man and he was at least twice my age, maybe three times, he was older. And I remember thinking to myself, well, late bloomer, huh? he's coming late to school, whatever. And I thought he was a student. And we're talking, and he asked me, oh, how did you pick Talbot? How are you at Talbot Seminary? So I'm giving him my whole story. Well, I visited some other schools. I was looking at Trinity Seminary, my favorite, one of my favorite professors is teaching there. And I was going to go, but then, you know, I, you know my, my um, church wanted me to stay and serve, and so I kind of picked Talbot, and I said it in that way. He goes, oh, okay, well, I'm glad you're here. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the MC's like, all right, let me get your attention. And at this time, we want to invite up the dean of Talbot School of Theology, right? <laughs> Come on up, Dr. Dennis Dirks. And then this guy that I was talking to, he stands up all of a sudden. I was like, oh, and I literally thought, I wonder where he's going. The dean's going to talk. He should sit down and listen. And then he goes up on stage. He goes, we want to welcome everyone. 
And I'm like, oh my gosh, my foot in my mouth disease again, right? And so after he gives his message, he comes back down, and I remember, I was like, I don't know what to say to him. I was like, Dr. Dirks, can I get you seconds? You know, can I get you a cup of water? You know, uh, are you sure I can graduate? You know, I mean, um, right? It's different who we talk to. Jesus Christ is now pointing to his divinity. He is 100% God, and he is talking about himself. He is the Messiah. He is here. And now the Jews are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you above us? Yes, he is above. Do you have more authority? Yes, he has more authority. And our response ought to be, well, I can trust you. And sometimes when it comes to trust, we say, well, God, I trust you with peripheral things. I trust you with these things. But we might have certain things we say, Boy, but God, don't touch these things. I raise my kids. God, you know, you know my, my, my money that I have that I don't even have enough. Think about it. All of those things we could trust God with. All the money that we have is his. The kids we have are given by him. He's the one that sustains us and gives us everything. And he's the all-powerful. So somehow we can go and say, God, I trust you. God, I don't know what tomorrow holds. God, it is really stressful at work right now. Things at home aren't going my way, but I can trust you. God, I feel like you're calling me to now do A, B, and C. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I could trust you in this. He is trustworthy. Let me encourage you to trust him. Second thing is let me encourage you to follow hard after him. Don't be casual when it comes to God. Please be casual about your work, if anything. Be casual about your pleasures. Be casual about your fun and the purchases you make. But when it comes to God, you cannot be casual. Follow hard after him. And I take that phrase uh, from Psalm 63, 8, to follow hard after God. Uh, A.W. Tozer has a chapter um, that he, in one of his books, and he titles it this way, to follow hard after God. To follow hard after something, someone, is a sense of passion. It's a sense of uh, getting rid of anything that's casual, optional, conditional. And saying, I'm there, and I'm all there. Uh, I love this quote from the late Dallas Willard. He says this, Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. It's easy for us to think, well, it's all by grace. Why do I got to do with this? It's all by grace. It's optional. All by grace. Well, I'll see, if I'll approach God when I need to. I'll pray when I have to. It's optional. But no, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It'll cost me my life. It'll cost me effort. But I don't earn anything out of this. And we have to understand that. You know, there's a, a man I wanted to share his story, uh, a missionary to India back in the 18th century. And I want to share his story as I wrap up. His name is Henry Martin. Henry Martin uh, was a man, he was born in an educated home, and he was someone that uh, biographers say that he was a brilliant, uh, super brilliant young man to the point that he was going to be, he was on his way to being a scholar as he was studying at Cambridge and um, he was, his life was set ahead of him. He was going to do very well. But one of the things was he was physically um, had issues. He was frail. He would get sick often. And so he would grow up this way. And uh, his power was his, his brilliance. Uh, 
But something happens um, in his early years when he is just about 19 years old. In the year 1800, in January, his father passes away all of a sudden. And this rocks his whole world and his thoughts. It would do for anyone at that age at any time. But for him, it shook him. And it got him to start thinking about eternity and spiritual things. And he started reading the Bible after life. And as he started reading the Bible, he started becoming a committed Christian. And he felt like he was called to be a missionary. And one of the prayers and I, I use and I share about Henry Martin is because all throughout his life, um, biographers point out to some of these prayers, and all of them point to the security he has in Christ, right? The, the finale, uh, I'm going to live for you. And he, you know, he confesses during his growth during this time. He said, for example, I could not consent to be poor for Christ's sake. Like he had all these earthly things, and he wanted God to take away some of these pleasures and uh, his desires for that. And so he starts praying. And his most famous prayer, he says, he prays to God. He says, God, let me burn out for you, oh God. Let me just be burned out for you. Saying, let me be used. Not a sense of being burnt out, tired. But a sense of, let me be used for you. Let me do something for you. Let my life matter. And with that prayer, he decides that God had called him to India. And as he is preparing, he spent two years at a church preparing to be a missionary in India. Towards the last part, he meets uh, the love of his life, uh, Lydia Grenfell. It was an instant chemistry that was there. And though he knew and he loved her for her because he knew uh, she wasn't going to India with him. And he was going back and forth, should I go after her or is it India? Should I go after her? Do I go follow God to India? And he denies that and he goes to India. A difficult choice, as you would imagine. He goes to India and he starts serving as a missionary, as a chaplain. Uh, some of the things that he did was, because he was so brilliant, one of the things that the, one of the biographers talk about is how brilliant he was and how good with languages he was. To the point that they said he was always reading and studying languages. He died, almost died several times riding on a horse because he was reading, right? Um, and uh, almost fell off and, and things like that. We see many people doing that now in their cars, right? Um, but he goes there, and in his short time there, um, he ends up translating two different, uh, into two different languages the New Testament. One, a local Indian language, one in Persian, and he does this. Um, before he knew it, he, he had uh, the symptoms of tuberculosis. It started escalating, and he knew his days were numbered. And uh, when those symptoms came about, he started working to translate the Bible into Persian. And in 1810, he preached his last sermon, and he says, this is the rest of what I'm going to do. And one of his prayers, again, he points to the finality of his life and how he is going to make it. And he says, and I, I quote his prayer, If I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. And I love this last phrase in his prayer, if he has work for me to do, I cannot die. Again, the security in Christ. And he finishes this. As he finishes this, he gets a letter from the, his first love, Lydia, and she writes him to come back. She wanted to take care of him. And as he had decided to go back, uh, his health started failing quickly. And on October 8th, 1812, he was 
in bed, literally on his last days. And one of the prayers he said, he says, I sat in the orchard and thought with sweet comfort and peace of my God. In solitude, my company, my friend and my comforter. Oh, when shall time give place to eternity? And he was looking forward to that. Two days later, October 14th, 1812, he passes away at the age of 31. Now, you and I might not translate books into the New Testament. You and I might not uh, have to deal with these health issues. We might be in a different life stage. We might not have to move to another world, country, and all this. But the thing that remains the same is the faith that he has and the God that he followed is the same God we follow today. And we can have the same assurance of faith that Henry Martin had and lived with. And that ought to prompt you, that ought to prompt me and all of us here to follow hard after God that when it comes to the things of God, I will not take casually. That I will live for God. And I know I will live until He takes me home. He has a purpose for my life. I want to encourage you uh, today. Maybe you've ever dealt with guilt or not knowing for sure what tomorrow looks like, he has it in his hands. So would you live with this confidence? Would you live with this passion for God? Would you be an outspoken Christian? Would you now go and do the things of God and do your best? You'll fail. We'll all fail at times. But he sustains us. He holds us in his hand. And no one will take us out of it. Uh, what truth and joy that is in the gospel. And with that said, let me close in prayer for us, if you would bow your heads for a moment. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this.